So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 today. It says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagine that he, imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have, the, have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So at my old house, um, we moved into the house, and every time it rained, or just about every time it rained, there was a spot in my yard that just would pool up with water. And it was just, I mean, sometimes it was two, three inches deep. Now, I, I had a lot of other things on my plate, didn't really think much of it, just kind of dealt with it for a while. Uh, hopefully, you know, when it dried out, I would mow the lawn, and it, you know, it was kind of a nuisance, but I just dealt with it. Didn't think much of it. I remember going out, and one time I was sitting in my backyard, and I remember hearing this pump, and I just assumed it was the neighbor's sump pump or whatever, didn't think much of it. Then, shortly after that, we got our fence replaced. And the, the back part of the fence was replaced. And I remember going out in the backyard, and I heard water hitting up against the fence that had just been replaced. I was like, that doesn't seem right. So I went and looked a little bit closer, and I realized what was happening. The neighbor's sump pump was emptying into our yard. So anytime it rained, all the water from the neighbor's yard was being pumped into our yard. So I was a little bit nervous about going and talking to him. I don't like confrontation, so I worked up the courage to go to talk to the neighbor about this. And uh, he was really, really nice, nice, nice person. Uh, but what was surprising was he didn't seem to have any knowledge that this was happening. And uh, it just, apparently he was just focused on his own yard and the things that were happening in his own yard that he didn't realize that he was emptying the water all in my yard. And I think we can do that sometimes. Sometimes we get so focused on our own issues, our own struggles, our own problems, that we don't see how those issues are affecting other people. Uh, we live in a, in a culture where community has kind of declined for years. And we think about morality, oftentimes we think about our personal relationship with God. It's just between me and God. And it's like, it doesn't matter what other people think, what other people are doing, I just need to please God, and that's, that's all. And there's a sense in which that is true. But we also need to realize that our actions affect other people. In our culture, it's all about individualistic obedience. 
But I think the truth is, if we look at the scripture, we can't live a truly moral life outside the context of community. We need the community of faith to inform us and community and faith to uh, inform how we behave. And uh, what we see throughout history is that as a sense of community decreases, so does a sense of virtue. That when we're not in community, our sense of virtue tends to decline. Uh, a few years ago, Google put together this listing of about 5 million books that were written between 1500 and 2008. And you could go and, and search for words in those books and see how often they appeared in, in books throughout history. And uh, New York Times writer David Brooks kind of did an informal study on this. And he, he found two things about the books that had been written in the past versus the books that have been written more recently. He found the first thing that he found was in the past 50 years, individualistic words and phrases increasingly overshadowed communal words and phrases. He says, for instance, the following individualistic words have been used more frequently. Self, personalized, I come first, I can do it myself. In contrast, the following communal words have been used less frequently. Community, share, band together, or common good. So he found that a sense of community has decreased throughout the last 500 plus years, but he's found that with that, morality or virtue has also decreased. Certain words, he said, were hard to find. Words like courage or gratitude, modesty, humbleness, discipline, honesty, patience, faith, wisdom, even evil started to be used less and less often. Brooks offers this interpretation for these trends. He says, so the story I'd like to tell is this. Over the past half century, society has become more individualistic. And as it has become more individualistic, it has also become less morally aware because social and moral fabrics are inextricably linked. The first two trends have led to certain forms of social breakdown which government has tried to address, sometimes successfully and often impotently. So in 1937, uh, Gallup, the first time Gallup asked this question to respond is they asked them, do you happen to, be gone, to belong to a church or a synagogue? 1937, that number was 70% of people said they belonged to a church and synagogue. That number remained relatively unchanged to about 1992. And even up as, to as early as the, the year 2001, that number was just slightly declined to 66%. Uh, between 2001 and 2020, there was a dramatic decrease in the number of people who said they belonged to a church or synagogue, uh, whereas in 2020, for the first time, it was below 50%. 47% of people said they belonged to a church or synagogue. Now, why was there a decrease like that? Well, there's probably a lot of different reasons for that, but in 2017, there was a survey that was done where they asked people who grew up in the church, who regularly attended church as a child, why don't you attend church anymore? Uh, or why aren't you a part of a church? And 65% of people suggested that they like to worship alone. 61% suggested that they did not like organized religion. And so you see a decrease in community, and then you see uh, also with that an increased acceptance of, of immoral behaviors. Between 2001 and 2015, there's a 23% increase in those who approve of homosexuality, a 15% increase in those who approve of sex outside of marriage, a 12% increase in those who approve of divorce, a 9% increase in those who approve of polygamy, 
6% increase in those who approve of suicide and 3% increase in those who approve of abortion. See, as a sense of community decreases, so does a sense of morality or virtue. So in the passage that we're looking at today, you have these Corinthian believers, and they're looking at this issue of food sacrificed to idols through a very individualistic lens. Now, in the ancient world, uh, there were a lot of pagan temples, uh, especially in Corinth, but also throughout the Roman Empire. And in these pagan temples, they would come and they would offer sacrifices. But the thing was, they would often only offer parts of an animal as a sacrifice. So they might offer a pig's heart. They might offer a kidney. They might offer various parts of the animal as a sacrifice. So then the question is, what do they do with what's left over? So what they would do is sometimes they would sell it in the marketplace, sell, sell the meat that was left over, and uh, sometimes they would have, or well, often they would have, especially in Corinth, they would have like these kind of banquet centers, and they'd be attached to the temple, and then people could come, and it was almost like a restaurant. You know, as you think about a restaurant today, they, there was plenty of food there, so people would come and eat in the temple. And so they're thinking about this question as, as believers, uh, how do we respond to this? Can we partake of this food that's offered to idols, whether it's buying it in the marketplace or going into the temple and eating it in the temple? Now, the Jew, traditional Jewish answer would be stay away from it. Don't have anything to do with this meat that's sacrificed to idols. Uh, they would cite people like Daniel, who only ate vegetables, drank water to try to uh, keep himself from being defiled uh, from, from the Gentile influence. And uh, many Jews saw their food laws or their food customs as kind of integral of, to what it meant to be Jewish. And so it was very important to Jews what they ate. Some people would go so far as not to eat anything that came from a Gentile, that is a non-Jew, because they were worried that maybe it would be defiled. Uh, the historian Josephus, uh, he notes that some priests were said to only eat dates and nuts because they didn't want to defile themselves with food that was unclean. And so from a Jewish perspective, you know, what one ate was integral to what it meant to be Jewish. And so a Jewish person, a traditional Jewish person, would probably want to have nothing to do with food-sacrificed idols. Now, when we think about food sacrificed to idols, uh, you know, we come from kind of a supermarket culture. It's like, all right, let's just go to a different shelf, find something else that's not sacrificed to the idols. But this was a huge part of Corinth. Uh, idol worship, I mean, it was pervasive, a, a pervasive part of society. It would have maybe been hard to find food that wasn't sacrificed to idols. And if you were not going to eat food that was sacrificed to idols or go into the the temple and eat food that, the, that was sacrificed to idols, it meant that you were going to miss out on a lot of social things. It wasn't just a, a spiritual thing. You were going to miss out on some social events because, you know, in these banquet centers, you know, think like a restaurant, people would have events. They'd have, you know, maybe a wedding. They'd have a funeral. They'd have a party, a birthday party perhaps, perhaps the celebration of a child. And so if you were going to avoid the temple, avoid the, the meat that sacrificed idols, it meant you were going to miss out on some things socially. So these people come along. One scholar refers to them as the knowers. They, they believe they have this superior knowledge to everybody else. They come along and they think to themselves, hmm, okay, so we got this food, sacrificed idols. 
I mean, it's good food, uh, and we don't want to miss out on these social events. And as believers, we know something. We know that there's no other God except for the true God. He's revealed himself in Christ. So as believers, we know that there's no other gods, and so we know that these rituals, they're kind of pointless. They don't mean anything. They have no substance because they're worshiping gods that do not exist. And so these knowers would say, well, it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter if we eat food sacrificed to idols. It doesn't matter if we go into the temple and eat this food because these gods aren't real. It doesn't mean anything. And Paul's response is kind of nuanced and can be a little bit hard to follow, but there's a sense in which he agrees, I think, with the, the believers in the sense that they're right. There, there is only one true God. He said, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. Whether we eat a hamburger or a chicken sandwich, it doesn't affect our standing with God. And so Paul would agree with the Corinthian believers in that sense, that food is not as important as, as maybe some people think that it is. They'd agree that He would agree that the gods aren't really real, that there are no other gods except for the true God who is one and revealed himself in Christ. But he says still, it's not okay. It's not okay to eat, uh, to, to, to do this unthinkingly. He communicates that what we do impacts more than our, just ourselves. That what we do impacts the community and impacts those around us. And he's going to kind of unravel their argument that it's okay to just do whatever we, we, we believe is right. And he's going to unravel it by communicating two things. The first thing he communicates is that love is more important than law. Love is more important than law. Of course, as believers, it's important that we know what God has said. And there's many issues in the scriptures where God is crystal clear on what he has said and what he expects of us. But there's other issues that are a little bit less clear, a little bit uh, more ambiguous. And, and these believers, again, are saying, all right, there's no other gods. We're just free to do whatever we want in regard to this issue of food sacrifice to idols. And Paul says this. He says in verse 7, not all possess this knowledge. In other words, some people who are believers perhaps still believe that these gods are real. Now, they've chosen to reject them. They've chosen to follow the true God. And so they've left that lifestyle, but they grew up in the temple. Perhaps maybe they were pagans, and they truly believe that there's something there, that they are truly gods. And while they've rejected them and, and, and turned to the one true God and true, chosen to follow after him and him only, they still believe there's something there. Now, Paul says, you as a believer, you know there's nothing there. There's, they're, they're not true gods. But if you go into a temple and you eat that food that's sacrificed to the idols, what, is, what are other people going to think? If you grew up in that pagan lifestyle and you believe they're true gods, you see your brother or sister eating in the temple, you might think to yourself, hmm, I thought that we, only had to, that we were only supposed to worship the one true God, but I see my brother or I see my sister participating in this pagan ritual, so maybe it's okay to follow after Jesus and to follow after these other gods as well. And so you could see how there would be some confusion there, whereas some people know 
their gods are not real, and other people think, well, they're real, but we should reject them. And so maybe that person that grew up in that pagan lifestyle, maybe they choose to engage in that activity. Maybe in the back of their mind they know that you know, they shouldn't be doing it, but they see their brother or sister doing it, and they partake in it. And when they're doing that, they're actually partaking in idolatry. Even though those gods are not real, there's nothing there, they think that they are real, and they're choosing to participate in those activities. So Paul says that, we need to be, that they, they, they need to be on guard for what a weak brother or sister might think or what, uh, not encouraging them to sin. Now, again, there's some issues in the Christian life that are crystal clear that there's no debate about, uh, and God has revealed what he requires of us. Other things are a little bit more ambiguous. And uh, sometimes that's hard for us to understand. But there's some issues where what's right for one person might be wrong for someone else, or what's wrong for one person might be right for someone else. Uh, Paul says this in Romans chapter 14, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, some of us have a real problem with this, especially if we're kind of analytical thinkers and black and white, it's like, this is wrong, this is right. And it has to be very clear. Now, we have a problem with this, but think about it this way. Let's say you're having dinner, you have a child, and you tell the child, don't eat out of the cookie jar. And when you're telling the child that, what you mean is don't eat out of the cookie jar before dinner. You've got to eat your vegetables. Afterwards, you know, maybe you can have a cookie out of the cookie jar. But you say just don't eat out of the cookie jar. Now, the child doesn't understand that. The child thinks that when you say don't eat out of the cookie jar, you mean never, ever eat out of the cookie jar under any context. So after dinner, you're doing dishes, and you look over, and, the, and your child is looking both ways to see if you're watching, and then slowly creeps over to that cookie jar and opens it ever so quietly and grabs a cookie. Now, you don't have a problem with them having a cookie. It was about having the cookie before dinner. But you probably have a problem with the fact that they think they're disobeying it and they're sneaking around to do it. And the same thing is true in regard to some issues in the Christian life. Even if it may not be wrong, if we think it's wrong, it's still an act of disobedience. If we think we're disobeying God, if we think we're going against his will, we actually are. Anything that doesn't proceed from faith, Paul said, is sin. Sometimes we wonder, why doesn't God give us clear directions on certain things? Why doesn't he just give us a complete roadmap for how we should behave, what we should avoid, what we should do? And I think the reason that he doesn't do that on certain issues is that the law can sometimes limit us from doing what God wants us to do. So you have in this, we see this several times in Jesus' ministry. Uh, you see people come up to him and kind of use the law as a justification to do what they want to do. So they, you know, Moses had this command against divorce and had certain, uh, certain exceptions to that, a couple limited exceptions to that. And so what did the Jewish people do? They used those exceptions as kind of an out to say, how can we get out of a marriage we don't want to be in? 
And so they would have debates. Like uh, uh, one rabbi would say, well, it's okay to divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever. Uh, even if you know, she cooks a meal wrong. And so they come to Jesus and they're like, which side are you on? Are you on the side of the Hillel or Shammai, the two rabbis? Which, which side do you take? And Jesus is basically like, uh, I'm for marriage. You know, and while there might be a couple reasons why that has to be dissolved, there might be some exceptions, I'm for marriage. And you shouldn't be looking uh, at marriage as, as just something that you can get out of. You shouldn't be looking for loopholes in the law. But that's exactly what they were doing. Jesus told, uh, told uh, a young lawyer, love your neighbor as yourself. What does he say? Surely Jesus can't mean that we should love everyone. I mean, we should love those who love us and, and hate those who hate us. I mean, surely he can't mean everyone. And so what does he do? He comes to Jesus and says, so who's my neighbor? He's trying to use the law as a loophole. Remember, Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Is seven times enough? He probably thought he was being really gracious. Seven times that someone would, you know, do the same thing and be forgiven. Is seven times enough, Jesus? He was looking for a law so that if you got to the eighth time, then he would be done. He doesn't have to forgive anymore. And what does Jesus say? No, I tell you 70 times seven. Jesus isn't going to give us a law to limit our love. He doesn't want the law to limit our love. He wants our love to be overflowing. And Jesus says, you're free not just to love those who love you, you're free to love your enemies. And so I think the reason on some issues he doesn't give us a, quote, law is because he doesn't want the law to limit us. He wants us to be driven by hearts that desire to please God and love those around us. Oswald Chambers once said this, you'll find nothing more searching than what the New Testament has to say with regard to the miserable petty line of insisting on my rights. The Holy Ghost, he says, gives me power to forgive, to forego my rights. It's not about a law, it's about love. He doesn't want the law to limit our love. Now, what's an example of that? There's potentially a number of examples that we think could think about today, but one uh, example is drinking alcohol. Now, many believers, myself included, believe there's nothing in Scripture that forbids someone from drinking alcohol uh, when it's in moderation and when it's not out of control, when there's no drunkenness involved. And, uh, but there's other people who believe that you know, drinking alcohol is wrong under any circumstance. And if you, know, if you believe that, then you shouldn't partake of alcohol. If you believe that it's wrong, then you should not partake of that. But also, if, we're, if we believe that it's okay, we need to be careful that we don't cause our brother or sister to potentially stumble. So one person, you know, and then a lot of times it's kind of based on your background. You know, one person, maybe, you know, you grow up in a, in a household where um, people would drink alcohol, maybe you know, at a Bills game, you know, have a have a beer or have a glass of wine at, at a fancy dinner or whatnot, and it was always kind of in control. Nobody got crazy with it, and you know, maybe if you grew up in that kind of context, you think to yourself, well, I mean, it's just a, it's just a drink. It's not a big deal. W what's the issue? You know, other people maybe have a different uh, background. Maybe you have a history of uh, abuse. Uh, uh, alcohol abuse yourself, or maybe you grew up in a household 
you know, where maybe everything was okay for a while until dad started drinking. And then when dad started drinking, you know, he just started swearing and the abuse started and things just got terrible and became a living hell in your household. Now, if, if that's your story, uh, you may believe that alcohol is wrong, that it's evil, because you've seen the effects that alcohol could potentially have on someone else. Now, of course, if that's your stance, you need to be careful not to judge someone who believes differently, who believes it's okay to drink alcohol. But if we believe that it's okay to drink alcohol, we also need to be cognizant of not causing our brother or sister to stumble. If they believe that's wrong, if they have this history of maybe a, a abuse, alcohol abuse, and it's going to cause them to stumble, we need to be careful we don't cause them to stumble. Maybe that means, you know, when we're going over to their house, maybe it means not bringing a bottle of wine. Maybe going out to dinner, it means not ordering a beer. It's not about a law, it's about love. Jesus wants us to move beyond the law and to move to love. Jesus says the whole law and, and the prophets, they're summed up in love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it's all about. And so let's not let law limit our love. Even if you have a right to do something, doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. Love is more important than the law. So that's the first thing that Paul says about uh, eating food sacrificed idols. He says it's, it's not just about you and God. This could potentially cause some other believers in the church to stumble. So you have to be cognizant of that. Um, the second thing he says is what you communicate with your actions makes a difference. What you communicate with your actions makes a difference. Well, in this passage, Paul doesn't give a clear pronouncement. He doesn't say clearly, hey, don't go into the, the idol temples and, and eat there. Uh, elsewhere in chapter 10, he actually does that. And what he says in chapter 10 is that even though these gods are not real, when you're participating in this ritual, you're communicating something. When you're participating in this ritual, you're communicating worship to these gods. And he says, if you worship Christ, you can't worship these other gods as well. So even though they mean nothing, to those around you, they mean something. So when people see you going into that temple, see you as a part of the sacrifice, see you eating there, they're going to think you're worshiping these pagan gods. And I think this is an important reminder for us. We need to be careful that what we do isn't misinterpreted. Even if something isn't wrong, Sometimes we need to be careful that we don't cause somebody else to stumble, that we're careful in how that's perceived. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I mean, there's, sometimes there's no way of avoiding misunderstandings. I mean, sometimes, you know, you'll do everything you can and, and your actions will be misinterpreted. But as much as we can, we need to seek to honor Christ by showing people the love of Christ and communicate and being careful about what we communicate with our actions. We can't just simply say, well, I mean well. It doesn't matter what other people think. I'll just do what I, want, I believe is right. Forget about everybody else. No. We're called to live lives in community. And that's really the con conclusion. God calls us not to some abstract law, but to live love in the context of community. We started by talking about the idea that the sense, uh, as the sense of community decreases, so does virtue. And the reason, I think, for this is there can't be any love without community. Community fosters love. 
As believers, we're called to live in community and to walk in love. As we talked about last week, believers are called not fundamentally to stand up for our rights, but to stand up for love. Whatever we should do should be driven by love. And we need to be careful about how our actions affect those around us. Leonard Sweet, author, tells a story about uh, giving up one's rights, giving up the law for the sake of love, for the sake of relationships. He tells about a man named Tom Wiles. He says Tom Wiles served a stint as a university chaplain at Grand Canyon University in Phoenix, Arizona. He says a few years ago he picked me up at the Phoenix airport in his new Ford pickup and whisked me away to a keynote, keynote a leadership conference at the university. Since I was still mourning the trade-in of my Dodge truck, we immediately bonded, sharing truck stories and laughing at the bumper sticker truism, nothing is more beautiful than a man in his truck. As I climbed into his 2002 Ranger for the ride back to the airport a day later, I noticed two big scrapes by the passenger door. What happened here, I asked. My neighbor's basketball post fell and left those dents and white scars. You're kidding, how awful I commiserated. This truck is so new I can smell it. What's even worse, he said, is my neighbor doesn't feel responsible for the damage. Rising to my newfound friend's defense, Sweet says this, Did you contact your insurance company? How are you going to get him to pay for it? Tom said, well, this has been a real spiritual journey for me. After a lot of soul searching and discussions with my wife about hiring an attorney, it came down to this. I can either be in the right or I can be in a relationship with my neighbor. Since my neighbor will probably be with me longer than this truck, I decided that I'd rather be in a relationship than be right. Besides, he says, trucks are meant to be banged up, so I got mine initiated into the real world a bit earlier than I expected. G.K. Chesterton said this, to have a right to do a thing is not at all the same as to be right in doing it. It's not about the letter of the law. It's about the love that God has put in our hearts that we, need to, that we are called to show to those around us. And so as believers, we need to consider not primarily what is permitted, how can we get as close to the line without crossing it, but what is helpful? What is something that God is calling me to do out of a heart of love? And so a few questions I'll leave you with are these. Is there anything in my life that I'm doing that might cause another believer to stumble? Is there anything in my life that I'm doing that might lead another believer to sin rather than to Christ? And is there anything that I'm doing that maybe isn't wrong in and of itself, but that might be misinterpreted by my brother or sister in Christ and cause them harm? Some questions to consider for us. Paul says this in Galatians 5 in conclusion. He says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that your love is not constrained by the law. That you were free to love us even while we were yet sinners. Even while we were in rebellion for, from you. Even when we deserved your judgment, you chose to leave your throne room in heaven and come down and die on the cross for our sins. Lord, as we deal with issues that 
maybe disputable or debatable, maybe issues that are a little bit ambiguous, that you haven't told us a clear answer. Lord, help us to seek to follow you with all of our hearts. Help us to love those around us. Help us to not do anything that would cause another brother or sister to stumble, but that everything that we do would be led by a heart of love. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.